Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 246 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Hey, if you're new to the podcast, just want to say welcome. Uh, we are having our best year ever, and it is a joy to welcome you. We know we have a lot of young leaders listening, a lot of business leaders increasingly listening, and of course, a good section of church leaders as well. And hey, one of the questions I want to answer today before we kind of get started is, what is with the eclectic guest mix? And it's a great question. And what I'm hearing from you is that you really enjoy the variety of guests that we have on. I mean, today we're doing a deep dive into theology, but recently we talked about the Enneagram. We talked with uh, Annie F. Downs about, uh, you know, women's influence and leadership. Talked to John Gordon about positivity. Uh, we've had Patrick Lencioni on. I mean, we, we're kind of, if you look at it, you're like, wow, this is like all over the map. And, and it is and it isn't. But I don't know about you, but I'm, I let my curiosity guide me when it comes to what makes it to this show. And what I'm realizing is that that is the story that so many of you have. Like, you know, we did an episode a while back on big data and that seems like a real outlier subject. And yet it was absolutely fascinating about how you can use big data. So we're talking about all kinds of subjects that honestly are of interest to me. And what I'm learning is more and more of interest to you as well. So that's sort of the filter through which we, we you know, put the show together because the reality is we have way more opportunities than we have spots available. So anyway, that is why the eclectic mix. And John Ortberg is the senior pastor of Menlo Church in Menlo Park, California. I have been there. It's fascinating, right in Silicon Valley. He's doing a great job. And of course, He's an author and a great writer. And today we're doing a deep dive into theology. And we are going to talk about realized eschatology. And I know you're like, what? <laughs> but uh, I read his most recent book, Eternity is Now in Session. And it's something that he and Dallas Willard thought about a lot. And you're like, what possible relevance does realized eschatology have to us today? Well, if you're new to the church or you don't go to church... The problems that we outline in today's episode are probably part of the reason why. And if you are a church leader who is struggling with why more people don't attend your church, well, there's some clues in today's conversation. So I think you're going to find it fascinating. Super excited to have John on the program. And uh, what are you doing May 1st through 3rd? And I've got a preferred answer for that. And that is, I hope you're joining us at Rethink Leadership. This is the fourth year we're doing this premier event. We have senior leaders, church leaders from around the world who join us and particularly from across America. So Rethink Leadership is a premier forum for senior pastors campus pastors and executive pastors where we don't just do talks, we do conversation, we do engagement. Uh, you sit around round tables, you can discuss your challenges with people who are doing exactly what you do. The speakers are far more accessible than they are at normal events like this. And you get your questions answered. I think you'll love it. Check out rethinkleadership.com. And you're listening to this at a really good time because guess what? 
The rates go up on February 21st. Yeah, so get the best deal, save a little bit of money, bring your team, and your admission to Rethink Leadership also gets you into the Orange Conference. So it's an incredible two-for-one deal. Plus, we got some curriculum specials when you register. So head on over to RethinkLeadership.com and join us today before the price goes up. Also, what are you doing in terms of staffing? I know a lot of people, a lot of leaders are saying, hey, one of the biggest challenges I have is just finding great people for the team. So let me tell you about a solution that works in the corporate world and in the church world. It's Belay. BelaySolutions.com. If you head over there, go to BelaySolutions.com forward slash carry. You'll see that I have been using Belay for a couple of years now. And I'll tell you, I absolutely love them. They provide top quality candidates because one of the challenges, right? When you do a staff search, it's like, man, I'm interviewing for like months. And then you're not 100% sure that it's actually going to work out. Well, what Belay does is they do all the interviewing for you. By the time you get presented with a candidate, 98% of people have already been sort of, I don't want to say weeded out, but that's the reality. It's like they've done all the hard work for you and they present you with the best of the best and they can get your team running or, you know, maybe you just need 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, something like that. They can get you started. So head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry to learn more. They're the solution I turn to and uh, actually... One of the reasons you get this podcast every week is because of uh, my team has a few Belay members on who are incredible at what they do. So go to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry to learn more. And in the meantime, here's my conversation with author, pastor, and I would say theologian, John Orberg. John Orberg, welcome back. Gary, thank you for having me back. That hardly ever happens. <laughs> well, get used to it. Okay, this will uh, this will probably be an annual kind of thing. It's just it's so great. I've enjoyed our offline conversations and um, and the episode that we did. Well, that would have been just about a year ago. I uh, just got so much traction. People were so grateful for it. So mm. it's one of those things where when it's a conversation with a friend, you just kind of pick up where you left off and go from there. I want to talk to you about your new book and I want to sort of dive into some ideas that um, you outline in Eternity is Now in Session. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's really interesting because and, and people are like, really, you're going to talk theology for an hour? Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> because theology impacts a lot of practicality and you went in a different direction. Back when I was in seminary a hundred years ago, we had these realized eschatology classes, which is essentially the discipline from which you're pulling, right? This idea that that heaven isn't something that happens way down the road when you die, you know, it gets into everything from how we do altar calls at the church to what salvation actually is to how we live our lives differently. But uh, I want to start here that you argue using a lot of Dallas Willard's thought and uh, you spent a lot of time with Dallas when he was with us. You read his works, I think, pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, we've completely misunderstood what salvation is, that our definition is wrong or incomplete. Uh, so for those who are listening who are believers and for those who aren't, but maybe are just interested in the business aspect of this podcast, can you explain what is the church? What have we gotten wrong in this generation about salvation? Well, uh, yes, this is all a fabulous topic of conversation, and uh, 
it's just part of the human condition. We always get stuff wrong. It's like, yeah. we, you know, we try yeah. to master ideas and try to master words and they're always too much for us and there's always leakage. So I don't think anybody should be surprised about this. And uh, of course, I'll get stuff uh, as wrong as anybody else will. But I do think uh, the tradition that I grew up in, which was kind of white bread evangelicalism, uh, for which I am very, very grateful uh, but there were a whole slew of words, ideas, concepts that we just got uh, a bit off. One of the great problems in life isn't the stuff that you don't know. It's the stuff that you think you know that you're just a little bit wrong on. And so uh, I grew up in the kind of tradition where uh, we would talk about uh, salvation and what that meant in everybody's mind is to be saved means that you are for sure in the heaven-bound category and when you die, they will not be able to keep you out because an arrangement has been made that makes it impossible for you to be kept out of heaven. And so we thought of salvation uh, in terms of the, the language that I use in the book is uh, the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be what? You pray to prayer? And uh, everything's right with God now. And regardless of how you live your life, everything's cool. Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, observation uh, when you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, um, yeah. which is a word that hardly ever gets used in the New Testament, only three times. Uh, but when uh, people generally use the term Christian, there's quite a lot of consistency in it. And uh, I was reading a book years ago. I love Abraham Lincoln, so I'm always reading the Lincoln mm. book. And there's lots written about Lincoln's faith. Uh, anytime somebody writes about Lincoln, it always turns out that Lincoln believes about religion whatever the person writing about Lincoln believes about religion because he's tough <laughs> Just like he said, down. all those quotes on the internet too, right? That's, that's <laughs> yeah, Lincoln. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and invented a great car. Uh <laughs> One guy who writes about him says, uh, you know, the classic question is, was Lincoln a Christian? And he says, before you can answer that question, you have to say, what is a Christian? Mm. Uh, which is a very interesting question. And then he says, you know, the standard definition that historians use is a Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus was divine, that he was the Son of God, and that his death on the cross is salvific. And if you trust in that death, that you will be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And so that's what it means to be a Christian. And as a general rule, uh, historians, um, sociologists, and just people generally will define Christian in something like that, usually about beliefs. And beliefs are very, very important. But part of what's interesting is if you go back at, and look at Jesus and then say, what did he ask of people? It isn't believe that I am the son of God and believe it. It's, it's actually believe everything that I say to you and do what I tell you to do. Follow me, become my disciple. That's his call for people. So it, it gets into this issue of what does it mean to be a Christian? And the New Testament hardly ever talks about being a Christian, but it does have a lot to say about being a disciple. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. Dallas used to say, that the New Testament is a book by disciples, for disciples, about disciples. Hmm. So, I mean, you can see the evangelicals listening, including the evangelical and me going, well, wait a minute, are you getting into work salvation? Like, where are you going with this, right? This is why this becomes a really, and I love the way you treat it in the book. So I just, I just want you to go there. What, what, what does that actually mean? 
Yeah, that, that will be, uh, for a lot of us from a certain tradition, the fear of adhering to salvation by works becomes a big fear. Again, a statement that Dallas would often make is that uh, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Hmm. You cannot earn your salvation. Earning is a posture. Earning is an attitude. And um, any self-righteousness or judgmentalism corrodes the soul and uh, uh, could never lead to salvation. And actually, uh, when you think about what kind of work person can God work with, it's very interesting. In the Bible, uh, when it addresses that question, it's not that God can't work with somebody who has a wrong idea about one doctrine or another. The consistent statement in the Bible is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. But people are that way. If you're trying to work with somebody, you can work with almost anybody except if somebody has a proud uh, spirit where they will not listen, they won't be coachable, uh, you can't work with that person. And so that notion of it's actually a humble, open posture before God uh, that, that characterizes the kind of person that God can work with. And so any uh, attitude that says... Um, I don't need God, I don't need to be forgiven, I don't need grace, I can do it on my own, I'm better than other people. Uh, that kind of attitude is destructive to the soul and is opposed to being saved. For what it's worth, I would repudiate that, that notion that you can be saved by your works or you can earn your way into God's sure. good graces or heaven uh, is not true. But that's quite different than saying uh, that following Jesus, which is offered to me by grace, does involve my intending to obey whatever Jesus said. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, for lack of a better term, in evangelical circles for decades, centuries, we've talked about a line. We've even yep. used that phrase, you know, crossing right. the line of faith. So yes. um, at, at the highest level, is there a line? Like, is there an in and an out? Because universalism, right? And when you when you're when you're talking to a lot of unchurched people, welcome to post Christian Cali, you know, California, post Christian Canada, where mm -hmm. I am, they're like, there's no line. Like, if God is really good, like, how is this not universalism? Is is there a line, and is that line discernible? To some yeah, extent? Canada, Canada is a lot like California, Kerry. We are. I mean, yeah, the Pacific ex except Northwest, for the, ex except for the weather. Except for the weather, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I uh, took snow out of my driveway today, so I had a snow yeah. shovel. You're not doing that so much in uh, Menlo right now? Well, no, it's actually very sad right now. It's it's we're still coping with the fire, so that's a oh, whole other. I didn't deep know topic. that was so close to you. I didn't uh, it's actually the campfire's almost a couple hundred miles away, but the uh, ash, uh, uh, air quality, uh, smoke, oh uh, yeah, it's just been devastating on every level all around. Yeah, I'm um, so sorry. Thank you. And yeah, for anybody that's listening to be praying, and uh, will be much appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there is a line. Uh, and actually, we might, we might think profitably about two lines. One is that the line Jesus calls people to cross, which is to become a disciple of him. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting that consistently what Jesus calls people to is to become a follower. And that means trust. It's made available by grace. We don't earn that. That is a gift from grace. 
we are to be powered by grace. Uh, one of the problems that I think happens in some churches is we restrict grace to just the forgiveness of sins. Mm. Uh, but in fact, God was a gracious person before anybody ever sinned. Grace includes the forgiveness of sins, but it's larger than that. Grace is mostly God's power in you to do what you cannot do on your own. Oh, mostly yeah. we experience God's grace as power. And again, Dallas used to say uh, that we often think that only sinners need God's grace. The reality is saints burn more grace than sinners ever could. Saints burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel. Saints wake up in the morning by grace, and they go from one moment to the next moment to the next moment, a conversation like this, living, moving, being guided, being strengthened by the grace of God. That's what they live on. And when we reduce grace to just the forgiveness of sin, and we make salvation by grace simply this forensic move where you go from one category to the other category, and then you remain untransformed until you die, we're not lifting up grace. We're actually cutting ourselves off from grace. Many people have been not just saved by grace, but paralyzed by it um, because they don't realize how to integrate it into their lives. I need to hear more on that. I remember reading that in the book that, um, you know, saints actually need more grace than sinners and rereading yep. it and rereading it. And I'm like, you, you got to say more that that we're paralyzed by grace. Like, what do you mean by that? Uh, because often we think that uh, in order to be saved, you must do nothing um, or that any uh, actions on our part are opposed to grace uh, because action is a work, and if I'm engaged in work, then I'm trying to do salvation by work. And uh, so I have to do nothing in order to remain appropriately humble or in order to appropriately honor the doctrine of salvation by grace or so on. We have no place to fit discipleship into salvation. Hmm. And then we have a very hard time actually with the New Testament. Uh, one, one of the statements in the New Testament is, grow in grace. Oh, now, yeah, you're right. How do you grow in grace? That does not mean grow in the forgiveness of your sins. Right. That means grow in your ability to absorb, to live in, to receive and experience the power of God within you to do what you could not do on your own. So. Right. Spiritual gifts uh, for somebody who is able to communicate the way that you are, that is God's grace at work in you. Anytime somebody is living and operating in their sphere of spiritual giftedness, and of course the language of the New Testament uh, around gifts and grace is very similar, they are experiencing the grace, the power of God to do in them what they could not do on their own. The Kiwis and the Aussies have a great phrase. We would say blessing. They say grace, you know, that mm. that's a grace. That's a grace that yeah. happened to you. And and that would be very accurate in this understanding, yep. would it not yeah. be? Yeah, no, it, it helps us to realize that we're meant to live in grace all the time and all kinds of events, people, words, moments uh, that come into our lives are grace. They are a gift of grace we're, we're, and we're learning to use it. And so... Uh, that offer of becoming a disciple is uh, a gift of grace. And that is the great line. And, and, and Jesus Jesus sharpens this a lot. And, and I do think sometimes in certain 
not in the evangelical world, in other forms of Christianity or more progressive forms of Christianity, there's actually a loss of the need to call people to decision. And I think that's a great loss. I think those of us that are involved in church leadership need very clearly to call people to decision. And the decision that we're to call people to is precisely the decision Jesus called people to, and that is to follow him. And that the opportunity to be a follower of Jesus is the greatest opportunity that has ever been extended to a human being. And when people get this, when they see the reality of what it is he offers of life together with him, they would cut holes through ceilings to lower their friends. They would climb up sycamore trees. They would uh, desperately race through crowds to grasp the hem of his garment. the, The possibility of becoming a disciple of Jesus and living in the reality of his kingdom is the greatest thing that any human being can ever have. And we ought to call people to be disciples of Jesus, to decide above all else they will seek to be with him and try to follow him. So there is a line, and it's a very important line. Now, There is a second line, and this is the one that uh, in certain traditions, a lot of evangelical churches, we tend to fight a lot about and obsess over. And the second line is not, am I a disciple or not a disciple? Uh, The second line is, am I in the heaven-bound group or am I not in the heaven-bound group? And so we will restrict uh, the, the question of salvation to, Am I in the heaven-bound group? Um, And then the debate is, um, what's the minimum amount that you must do or believe in order to be assured that you're in the heaven-bound group? And that's what I'll talk about is the minimal entrance requirements. And I will use that image from uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where towards the end they're you know, trying to get across the chasm to get into the bridge and they have to give the right answers to the bridge keepers. Uh, And if they get it wrong, they're cast down into the abyss. And if they get it right, they get to go to a good place where the Holy Grail is. And a lot of people think of the gospel as what's the correct answer such that if you give it to the question, they have to let you into the good place after you Mm -hmm. die. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I said the magic words, so I'm in, right? Yep, but when you go back and you look at Jesus and you ask, where does Jesus ever say, Now I will tell you the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. He never says anything like that. He never expresses the gospel in that way. And I believe that it's a problem trying to determine what are the minimal entrance requirements. Uh, And it's because of the nature of heaven and the nature of a relationship with God. And it's a little bit like uh, when I got married to my wife, Nancy, If I would have said, now, what are the minimal requirements you have for me to be married to you? Uh, She would not have spelled them out uh, because... She might have gotten uh, rid of you. Yeah. If if that's what I was after, it would have shown that what I wanted wasn't really to be married to her. If marriage to her is what I really want, then the minimal amount of devotion that's required will not be of interest to me. Now, there would be a minimal amount. Out there somewhere, there'll be some level of betrayal, infidelity, misbehavior. There would be some place where if I engaged in that behavior, she would no longer stay married to me. But that's not the kind of issue that I would ask for or that it would even be possible to spell out ahead of time. 
And so for anybody who wants to be saved, who wants to be with Jesus, that becomes a disciple of him, uh, you can be absolutely certain that uh, death will not interrupt that and that God is the kind of person who, of course, will want you to be with him forever. Mm. But as soon as we try to say, um, what's the minimal amount? What's the least amount that I can believe? What's the least amount that I have to affirm to get in? That is not made clear to us. There is no place in the Bible that says, now we will lay out the minimal entrance requirements. And oddly enough, that's where so often, at least in the evangelical circles that I grew up in, the debates would be about. And then we get into these weird situations where um, uh, there used to be a debate you might have heard, some of our listeners might have heard of, uh, called Lordship Salvation. Um, and, go ahead. No, I, I don't think that was part of my upbringing. Okay, well, tell us about that, was, that was probably a few decades ago. And it was over precisely this question. And one camp would say, uh, you are saved by grace through faith. And so you can know that you're going to heaven for sure, even if you have not made Jesus your Lord. You can have him as your Savior, even, even though he's not your Lord. And then oh, wow. the other side would say, no, no, no. There is no way you can be saved unless Jesus is Lord as well as Savior. And what the first group would say to that is, well, but that's works righteousness. Now, if mm -hmm. I have to make Jesus my Lord in order to get into heaven, how much obedience do I have to give him? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? Is it 70%? And so there's be this big debate over, uh, must you make Jesus your Lord in order to be saved or not? But what, what the two different sides didn't recognize is, what do they agree on? They both recognized where they differed. They differed over, do you have to make him Lord in order to be saved? What they agreed on was, to be saved means to have satisfied the minimal entrance requirements. Now, they never spelled it out like that. They didn't make that phrase. But it was that uh, concern, what's the minimum entrance requirements? That's the only issue that made the debate possible. They both agreed that salvation is What's the minimal entrance requirements? And as long as you do that, that issue of lordship or discipleship will trip you up forever. Because if you say, yes, it's required, then you have to worry about, well, uh, how much do I have to give to make sure I'm over that minimum line? And if you say, no, it's not required, then you're stuck with, well, how can I understand the New Testament to be saying, yes, I've made arrangements for you to get into heaven, even if you don't want me to be your Lord, when, of course, heaven is, among other places, the place where we will experience nothing but the Lordship of Jesus. So th there's just huge debates on that. The idea of saving faith. When I grew up, that was a common phrase, saving faith. But what we meant by that was not what the New Testament means. It wasn't. What is that mental map? What are the beliefs that Jesus has? How does Jesus view his father and life such that if I share that understanding of life, faith, and God, I will live the way that Jesus lived. I will be saved, mind, heart, soul, and body. No, no. We defined saving faith as what's the minimum amount you have to believe in order to go to heaven. We made that saving faith. How did we get into this? How did we get into this place where that became the debate of a generation? And I think it lingers, you know, you, I want to get back to that. But one thing I just want to repeat that you said earlier is, you know, there is a line, there's two lines, but 
I think I think the problem with liberal Christianity is there is no line. Right. And the problem with conservative, like hyper conservative Christianity is there's only a, a line. Like that's it. And once yes. you cross it, nothing else matters. Right. They become caricatures of that. But how do we get into this mess where we're just so confused about the very essence of what what this thing is that so many of us believe and preach? Yeah, it, it would take a much better historian than me. I mean, I'm not a historian, <laughs> so um, I don't know. I have a couple of guesses. I think that uh, uh, pendulums always swing. Pendulums of thought sure. always swing. And part of what happened in the Reformation was that abuses that were going on in the church, uh, uh, the purchase of indulgences to be able to escape from purgatory and get into heaven, uh, were so egregious that the discovery or the rediscovery of God's gracious acceptance of sinners was just overwhelming. And in that process, certain strands of Protestantism kind of gravitated toward f- from uh, the rediscovery of grace and faith and God's acceptance to uh, defining salvation as the minimum entrance requirements. And I think if you read somebody like Luther, uh uh, it's very clear that Luther understood that faith is a living thing that inevitably results in uh, behavior that reflects what it is that you believe. So I think part of it probably goes back to the Reformation. I, I do think that a big part of it is this. When the church has worked right, when it's been at its best, part of what it provides is a concrete, non-legalistic community of transformation. Hmm. There is a community that offers a way of life which is what discipleship is, through which we receive the power of God to be transformed. And uh, with Jesus, the way of life was you just literally follow him around. That's something you did with your body. And then after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, you're the Acts 2 community. And their way of life was so different uh, as it's described in Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, to the breaking of bread and fellowship. Daily they met together. Uh, it was so clear. You knew if you were a disciple or you were not a disciple. Mm-hmm. And then over the next few centuries, it spread until eventually the majority of people in the Roman Empire were now believers in Jesus. But the way of life got so diluted, it had lost the power to transform. And so you have uh, people like Anthony going into the desert and trying to find again a way of life through which they can receive the power of God to be changed. And you you find this historically in different periods of time. And I think anytime there's not communities of life that are living a way of life through which they can receive the power of transformation, um, if, if we can't have that way of life available to us, we will look for alternative dividing lines to separate the sheep from the goats. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's where I think the the appeal of, now here's a real clear line so that if you believe this, you can know for sure you're in the heaven-bound category, in some ways brings a certainty that's required because there no longer is a vibrant community that is clearly providing a transforming way of life. One of the refrains of the book, John, is that salvation isn't about getting you into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you, which I think is yep. a really, you know, succinct way of, of compressing a lot of thought. 
Um, and, and that makes sense with Jesus. You know, when he taught, he said, hey, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's near. It's around you. It's closer than you think. But the thing that haunts me, it haunted me for years before I read your book, while I was reading your book, um, is sometimes I think, you know, there was a, the, the most religious people of Jesus day missed the kingdom of God when it showed up. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I look at myself, I look at the church and I think, I think we're more like the Pharisees than we are anyone else. Can you comment on that a little bit? Um, what, what do you make of that? Is that like, if you miss the kingdom of God, is that where you end up? And then what does that look like? Like that, that does haunt me. I think it haunts anybody uh, who gets involved in religion and there's no way to, uh, there's no way to bypass religion. One of the things Dallas used to say about Jesus is that he's in the church, but he's not boxed in by the church. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And uh, we have to think about faith and think about God and think about worship and how do we do that. And those are all elements that fit in the category that's generally called religion. So some people will make a real big distinction between religion and Jesus. That always feels a little arrogant to me Hmm. because uh, there are simply elements that, that as human beings we have to think about. How do we gather? How do we worship? How do we think about God? How do we pray? Uh, and those are elements that are generally associated with the word religion. So I think that's just part of life that we have to deal with, like politics or economics. But then we have to recognize Jesus is so luminous and beautiful and radiant and transcendent that no religion, not even Christianity, can box him in. And he's hmm. constantly you know, breaking forth in surprising ways. This idea of what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God uh, and how do we recognize its presence— um, is terribly important. And, yeah. um, you know, the Pharisees tend to take a real bad rap over the year, over hmm. the years. And uh, uh, there are elements of goodness there. Jesus was probably more like the Pharisees than he was the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots or any other other groups in his day. And uh, it was Pharisees that warned Jesus that Herod was out to get him. So it's not like they're just the villains or the bad guys. And Christians have sometimes been guilty of that kind of uh, thinking. But Jesus certainly has lots of warnings about them and about people whose uh, faith, religion, spirituality causes them to be proud and unloving. Mm-hmm. And uh, since love is the basic commandment, that's the worst thing that can happen to somebody. Henry Nowen used to say, the hardest thing in the world is to stop being the younger son without turning into the elder brother. Hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is here, and again, uh, Dallas has been the most helpful person for me on this one. Uh, the idea of a kingdom is something that everybody has. Uh, you've got a kingdom. I've got a kingdom. The technical language for it is uh, it's the range of your effective will. Um, your will is okay. right at the core for for you to be able to choose to say yes or no. Uh, that's why a two-year-old's favorite word is no, and their next <laughs> favorite word is mine. Right. Um, they're learning that they have a kingdom. We have a grandchild. Our first grandchild is almost six months old. That's awesome. And uh, Oh, it's unbelievable. He is the most beautiful baby in the history of the world, and we had three of them. Um, <laughs> and, and watching him learn... Uh, right now he's learning how to put his feet in his mouth, uh, which is actually something I kind of do for a living, but he's learning how to do it physically. 
And uh, th- the marvel of that is that's just matter when you think about it. That's just atoms and molecules, and it's coming under the reign of a personal will. Wow. And that's why it's always miraculous to us to see a little baby develop, because what you're watching is tissue, flesh, matter, literally coming under the reign of a will, which yeah. is, uh, you know, just mysterious and remarkable. And, and, and that's a kingdom. Uh, so your body is where your kingdom begins. It's the range of your effective will. That is what you say to your hand, move, and it moves. And you don't even understand how that works. It just happens. Mm-hmm. And then the amazing thing about human beings is our kingdoms are able to extend so far beyond our bodies through the power of ideas and speech and communication. And so so you have a little kingdom. I have a little kingdom. My grandson Chance has a little kingdom. Kids start to grow up, they get in the backseat of the van and they fight with each other, better not cross over this line because this is where my kingdom ends and your kingdom starts and I will defend my kingdom. And all of those kingdoms uh, merge into families and neighborhoods and schools and corporations and nations. And all of that together is what we might talk about as the kingdom of the earth. Mm. And then there is this entity, it can be described in lots of different ways, but the phrase that Jesus uses most often is the kingdom of God, which just means the range of God's effective will. It is wherever things are the way that God wants them to be. Hmm. And uh, the gospel of Matthew often uses the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God because uh, devout Jewish people were often reluctant to use the name God. They didn't want to blaspheme it, so they would use the word heaven. But he's not describing a different entity. It's a very interesting thing. I, I prayed this prayer growing up, but never thought much about it. Uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And I, I was kind of taught when I was a kid to pray uh, the beam me up prayer from Scott, from Star Trek. you know, like, yeah. Scotty, you got to get me out of here and get me up there and this world's going to get torched and so get me out of here. But the prayer that Jesus teaches is that we should pray to God, uh, not get me out of here so I can go up there, but make up there come down here. Hmm. May your kingdom come, your will, God's kingdom is the range of his effective will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, do I believe that's possible? Do I believe that God's kingdom, God's will can be done down here as it is up there? And so now part of what that means is that the kingdom is not someplace way, way, way far away or someplace far off in time. Uh, And with Jesus, what happens is the kingdom of God through his body has invaded planet Earth. And in his life and in his teachings and in his death on the cross for our sins and then his resurrection The kingdom of God has broken through on earth in a way that makes it now accessible to everybody, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. And anybody who wants to can just come right on into and live in that kingdom. And the way that you do it is you become a disciple. You say, this is the greatest opportunity of my life, and I will not miss it no matter what the cost is. I must have this. And you become a disciple. 
not to earn your way into the pleasure palace when you die, but because being a disciple is intrinsically connected to the gospel of Jesus. And if we're preaching a gospel that doesn't have the natural tendency to produce disciples, we are preaching the wrong gospel, and we got to think it out again. And a disciple is simply somebody who says, I must have the reality that the gospel promises in my life right now. No, that's so good. And I think I think that that gets into the heart of the tension that I think a lot of us struggle with as Christians, as Christian leaders, and maybe for a few listeners as people who would say I'm definitely not a Christian, but you're putting your your finger on something that bothers me about the church and that yep. is these Christians. It's what Gandhi said. I think I think you quote it in the book. Uh your Christians don't look much like Jesus. Where where we we are the place, it's what Bonhoeffer in the Second World War called cheap grace, right? This idea that, you know, God just has this magic wand, he kind of waves over us, we're all saved, but nothing's ever different. And so um, what does it mean to you to get heaven into, into a mm. follower of Jesus, to be a disciple? Mm. Like what does, how is my life different because heaven starts to be realized in my little kingdom. And yeah, it becomes well, a little less selfish. No, that's wonderful. Maybe. So let's talk about heaven for a minute. Yeah. Uh, again, that's a word that gets thrown around all the time. Um, in political cartoons, if somebody dies, you always see an image and there'll be a cloud and maybe a harp and white robes and a big mm -hmm. gate. And images are very powerful. They, they, they go way, way deep inside us. And so most people will have those images, and if they think about heaven much more than that, they will think about it as this big pleasure factory yeah. and think, uh, of course, anybody who dies would want to go to heaven because that's the pleasure factory. And so then their, their problem becomes, why isn't God more inclusive? Why doesn't God allow more people into heaven? And uh, what they never think about is that uh, as the writers of Scripture talk about the afterlife, uh, the primary characteristic of it is it will be life with God. Mm. Uh, the, the, the unifying theme of the Bible is God's desire to be with, to offer life together with the human race. That's what the Garden of Eden was about. That's what the tabernacle was about. That's what the temple was about. That's why Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The whole thing is God's desire to be with people. And uh, uh, in heaven, um, God will be very hard to avoid. <laughs> you know, yeah. we often think of heaven as if it's like the Wizard of Oz and God's probably there someplace. And if you want to, you could probably go see him. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to golf. Yeah. Right? Well, mm -hmm. well, and part of the issue that gets to is uh, what about my desire to sin? And I will sometimes ask folks this, Carrie, I won't do this with you, but I'll ask people, have you ever committed sexual sin? And uh, if people are honest, pretty much most folks have. Who hasn't, And then, and then the next <laughs> yeah. question is, uh, did you do it while your mother was watching you? And of course, the answer is always no, no. because that would take all the fun out of it. Uh, you know, if I'm going to engage in that behavior, I must be able to get away from my mother. Well, let's think about God. And what would it be like if you can literally never get away from the awareness of the presence of God? Now, mm. of course, we're never really away from God's presence, but part of what God does to enable us to live with freedom and choice is 
to hide his presence so it's very possible for us to live without conscious awareness of his presence or his watching. So what would it be like if you were at a place where um, lust, uh, gossip, superiority, judgmentalism, apathy, greed, uh, stubbornness are simply never available to you? It's like if you're a, a chronic smoker and you go to this place where there's no smoking section, it would be awful. Uh, in heaven, God will be very hard to avoid. It's not like uh, God is pretty big, but heaven is way bigger. Heaven is way smaller than God. Heaven is way smaller than God. And there'll be no place to sneak off to for a quick sin. And that's why one of the things that Dallas used to say about heaven is, I'm quite sure that God will allow everybody into heaven who can possibly stand it. Very, very much like C.S. Lewis, right? He's like, you, you wouldn't want to be there. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. That's mm-hmm. what Lewis said. Um, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And so then uh, heaven, from a biblical standpoint, isn't primarily about relocation. It's primarily about transformation. Well, speaking of C.S. Lewis, there's another observation he makes that I thought was so interesting. Uh, He compares faith and science and magic one time. And he said, most of us would tend to associate uh, faith and magic on one hand and then science on the other, because we think of science being natural and the other two supernatural. He said, actually, in a deeper way, um, science and magic are much more connected with each other than faith uh, for this reason. Our, our biggest question is, what is the problem that plagues the human condition? And science and magic both say it's outside of us. Mm-hmm. And so if we could use science or magic to be wealthy or healthy, then we'd be happy. Faith says that our basic problem is inside of us mm-hmm. and that it is uh, our inner character that must be transformed for human beings to flourish. And that inner transformation is far more significant than uh, circumstantial happiness. And if you have someone who is deeply troubled, fallen on the inside, you can put them in great circumstances and it won't help much. But if you have somebody who is radiantly good, joyful, and loving on the inside, even in difficult circumstances, they will have a glorious life. So heaven is not mostly about my external circumstances. It's mostly about being transformed in my character such that the constant stream of my thoughts, desires, and intentions flow with love, joy, and peace. I don't know whether it was in the last time you were on the podcast or just another conversation, but I remember you saying to me, uh, and maybe you've written about this, I don't know, but that when Dallas died, which was over five years ago now, uh, you wondered whether he would even have noticed right away. <laughs> that Do you remember saying that? Oh, and, it, it, that was something Dallas said uh, oh, that was in what conversation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, he yeah. was just, he was, he had pancreatic cancer and so the future was real clear and he would just uh, often look off in the distance. He was the most remarkable person and uh, and he would say things that literally would, nobody else could say, nobody else would think of. And one time he was musing on this not long before he died. And he said, you know, I think when I die, it might be a while before I realize it's happened. Now explain that, unpack that. Uh, 
The idea is that primarily our lives, your life, is that ceaseless flow of thoughts and perceptions and observations and desires and feelings and intentions that is your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And way more than you're your body, uh, you are that flow of consciousness that never ends. And, And by the way, that's not the same thing as your brain. Uh, nobody has ever seen an idea. Nobody has ever seen an intention that's different than a synapse firing. And that is your life. That is your life. And Jesus says that for those who trust him, uh, that will not stop. He says one time, uh, those who trust in me will not taste death. Hmm. That's really interesting. What does it mean to never taste death? Well, it means that that flow of uh, consciousness of thinking and feeling and desiring that you're experiencing right now, that will not stop. Uh, your body will come to a conclusion, but that, uh, th- your life, your conscious life will not cease. And so Dallas was just musing on that and thinking about now uh, his thinking and wanting and, and feeling and reflecting, that's just going to keep going right on. And it may be that it will take some time after his body has died, but his mind just keeps right on going because you don't taste death. It may be some time before he realizes, hey, I've died. And I had never thought about that possibility before. And most of us, again, we most of us never give serious adult thought to words like heaven, hell, salvation, trusting Christ, afterlife. We just don't think. Well, to me, and maybe I misunderstood his quote, but I thought it also moved in the direction of that his intimacy with God, his sense of God's presence, and the attributes of the kingdom that you write about in Eternity is Now in Session were present enough to him that it would be a continuation of the life that he had come to enjoy on earth rather than a radical night and day departure from it. Well, it is a very interesting thing. He he would write sometimes about uh, that transition from life on earth to the next life. And one of the pictures that he would use is um, uh, somebody who is in a room and they move to the door into the next room. And while they're there, they can hear the conversation going on in the next room, but they're still aware of that room that they're in the process of leaving. And uh, that uh, Jesus is coming for them and welcoming them. And it is an interesting thing. When Dallas died, a friend of mine named Gary Black was with him in the hospital. And he said, uh, although the circumstances of Dallas's death were quite hard, that Dallas's final words were, thank you, thank you. And Gary said they were not directed towards him or anybody in the room. And so I'm not actually sure if those were Dallas's last words in this life or his first words in the next one. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, yeah. it, it's hard to speak after that. Um, I read when Eugene Peterson died uh, more recently, uh, according to someone who was there or knew his son who was there, his final words, and it was a very peaceful death, uh, were, were, let's go. Uh, like it was wow. anticipatory rather wow. than a farewell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's fascinating. And I, I would say, you know, both in Dallas Willard, I, I wrote a piece about it. We'll link to it in the show notes, but the loss of Dallas Willard, the loss of Eugene Peterson, they were two giants in our age. I, and, I read that. My wife sent your words to me and they were wonderful, wonderful words. Yeah. Well, you know, John, honestly, I, I think I think you're one of those voices in our generation as well that I've I've learned so much from. And, it's a sense in which 
the the kingdom of God is present and embodied and we all kind of want to be that way. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yep. And yet it can seem so difficult. And I think the reason I wanted to talk for an hour or so on theology was we're in this strange time in the church and the church is not in its finest hour where um, salvation's a line, uh, which I think it is. I mean, I think theologically it is. There is... Um, you know, some kind of line somewhere that's probably better known to Christ than it is to me. Mm-hmm. And there is a decision point. And yet there are so many people that claim to follow Jesus who look nothing like Jesus and, you know, are counting on getting into heaven, but there's not a lot of heaven in them. And uh, you look at Dallas, you look at Eugene, I look at your life from what I know of you. And I see, I see a different countenance, to use an old word. I see... I see a different fruit. You know, it's the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, Mm -hmm. peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, all those things that that are sometimes too absent in people who claim to follow Jesus. Um, uh, A couple thoughts. I I love what you say, and I think it is helpful for people to understand uh, there is a line. I do believe that uh, in the end, there will be some people who are with God forever in heaven and then other people who are away from him forever in hell, whatever that looks like. Dallas used to say, hell is just the best God can do for some people. Really? That's yeah. a, I, I did not know that. Yep, yep. And again, really? that's like a, it's as good a definition as I know how to come up with because God loves everybody, but for people that don't want him, hell's the best that he can do for them. Um, there is, is, is a that line. a little bit? Is that a little bit like you know that friend we all have who everyone's tried to help him fifty nine ways from Sunday, mm-hmm. and just no matter what you do for that person, they're not open. They will not go to rehab. They will not, um, you know, be financially responsible, or they won't treat people the way people need to be treated. And you've helped yeah. them a thousand times, and eventually you're like, well, I still love you, man, but I don't know how to help. I, I so, do think. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis has that book, Great Divorce, where mm-hmm. uh, what turns out to be hell uh, is not known as hell by the people who live there, uh, and it ends up being infinitely small compared to heaven. And I do think that's true when you look at a life that's characterized by the rejection of God and uh, the exaltation of self, it gets very small. And isn't that and, the book where he says they go to heaven and like every the grass is thorny and it, yeah, it, right. it pricks yeah. them and they don't yeah. like it and yep. that that idea that you were getting to earlier reality is too much for them to bear they have to grow to develop the capacity to bear reality yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so I do think that there is a uh, there's a tremendous weight that ought to be very sobering for every one of us that we are. Uh, eternal beings, that, that our lives will not cease, and uh, that could be glorious or uh, could be hellish, could be horrible. And, and as Christians, uh, we ought to think about that and help people uh, reflect very seriously on that. We live in an age where every age has its own illusions, and in this one, the notion that we ought to be sober about uh, our afterlives and our souls is largely lost. And then I do think we see some people, and Dallas was one of those, where there's a uh, a radiance about them that is almost like a physical shining. I mean, you just look at their face, and their faces almost literally shine. Hmm. 
I want to get into apologetics. So, John, earlier today, I'd done another interview. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll stack them and do two or three in a day. But I talked to Jonathan Pokluda, who leads the largest young adult ministry in America. They reach eh, something like 50 to 100,000 via different media uh, in a week. And they'll have, you know, thousands attending on a Tuesday night. And um, one of the things he said, which was interesting, this will be for listeners, episode 235, which will probably have aired by the time this is on in this strange universe of doing episodes out mm. of sequence. But anyway, his main point was spectator church is dead. That if you really want to engage young adults, you've got to call them to something big. You've got to call them to a purpose uh, greater than their life, and they will willingly give their lives to it. So I want us to think in terms of apologetics, in terms of, you know, how this actually lives out in the life of a church. So if you have this different view that it is as much getting heaven into you as you into heaven, how does that play out in the radical call to discipleship that we issue as preachers? How does uh, the way we frame salvation change and what is the difference it will make in our churches and in people's lives? I think when the church works right, it is a um, it is a spiritual community of people who are pursuing a transformational way of life, and it looks a lot like AA, which of course grew out of an attempt to recapture discipleship. Yeah, it will always result in um, mission and uh, uh, reaching out in love, um, although it will never. Uh, devolve into just a social action group. Um, and the reason for that is uh, social action alone doesn't recognize the significance of the individual life or what is required to nurture and cleanse an individual soul. And so there's this constant interaction between uh, my life as an individual before God and uh, its value to him and how it needs to be changed. And then the fact that I have to constantly be a conduit and a servant to those who are outside. So uh, I think that's deeply true. The call to people to be uh, transformed and engaged in transformation and on mission never ceases. I will say one more thing about it. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in the last decade or two, there are movements that emphasize the call to... Uh, radical devotion or radical commitment or radical yeah. discipleship. Um, and I, I take it that part of Jesus's teachings uh, are that given the goodness of the vision that's offered, deep devotion will never look radical to somebody who is offering it. Uh, and again, it's very much like in AA, hmm. uh, the only way to pursue sobriety uh, is utter surrender. In, in movements that emphasize the uh, kind of radical commitment, there can often be a self-congratulatory note or a judgmental note or a look how radically committed I am and this, you know, kind of pseudo-prophetic, what's the matter with these lukewarm people? There won't be any lukewarm people with God. And it's very much like Jesus tells this fascinating parable of... Uh, the servants where uh, the master wants his meal and the servants don't sit down with him. And at the end of the day, they just say, we are only unworthy servants. And I used to think that's a really weird parable because he's like the servanthood guy and why would he tell that? But the point of it is, uh, if somebody really recognizes what Jesus is offering, their devotion to him will never look heroic. Mm. Just like if somebody is in AA, 
their involvement in an AA to them will never look heroic. And if it does begin to look heroic to them, they know they're in trouble and grandiosity is just around the corner. Uh, and that if somebody is uh, actually growing in the kingdom, uh, it, it will appear to them like, well, of course, this is just what you would do. Another statement that Dallas used to make is, one of the signs of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. Ah. So that deserves an hour. For Mother Teresa, uh, if you were to say to Mother Teresa, what an amazing, how radically devoted you are, your deep, her response, no, you know, this is what you do. And I do it mostly because it brings so much joy to me, which uh, servanthood did to her. So, Following Jesus is a call to utter devotion, much as uh, getting involved in AA involves a total surrender to the will. But there will often be in churches and even in some worship songs, here I am to worship it, we'll do this thing where we look at how devout we are and we get moved in singing, not actually by God, but just by, look how devoted I am, look how... to me. Here I am, yeah, and... uh, so Do you know how long the, I prayed? Do you know I wore out the uh, knees on my uh, yeah. my jeans? Like yeah. right, yeah, yeah. And I'm more devoted than you are. So there you go, John. Right. Yep. Hey, when you're when you're preaching this, what like because calls to salvation are things that mm-hmm. I do, yep. and I mean we lead people through prayers. Yep. What are what are some helpful ways to do that in light of this? What are some things you try to avoid? Yeah. Uh, it, it took me a long time to think through this and to get clear on this. And it may be for some people listening to us, if there are people in churches or even people who preach occasionally, they might be able to relate to this. I would sometimes feel uh, fuzzy or even guilty about how exactly am I supposed to frame things up and what does it mean to call people to salvation? That's and called it's gotten, every week in my life. By uh, it's gotten very you. clear to me that... Uh, always the call uh, is and must be for people to become disciples of Jesus mm. and to say, I intend to do everything this man said to do uh, with his help, uh, as a gift of grace, as somebody who has been forgiven by God. But, but what I call people to is uh, to become followers of Jesus and intend to do everything he said. And it's very interesting, Kerry, you're talking about skepticism before. I actually think that the correct understanding of the gospel and Jesus and invitation and decision makes uh, responding to him more accessible in a skeptical age rather than less. Hmm. Uh, The way that I used to think about calling people to a commitment was, here's how to get into heaven when you die, and that means you must believe the right things about Jesus, that he was divine and that he did this, and so that's the starting point. It's very interesting with the disciples— they were actually disciples and followed him around for some time before he ever asked them, who do you say that I am? Hmm. They You're didn't right. start You're by right. having a correct theological definition of Jesus. They just started by committing themselves to be his disciples. And he actually says at one point in John, uh, if you do my will, you will know my teaching is from my Father. So the way the experiment works is, Begin by becoming a disciple. Begin by sincerely, humbly asking God for help, doing what it is that Jesus teaches. And if you do that, it will become self-validating, and you will discover that he is who he said that he was. If you do his teaching, you will come to know that it is from the Father, and you'll come to uh, his identity. 
we've turned that into. So, so the idea is, if you do what I say, eventually you'll know who I am. Mm. We turn that into, if you will affirm that he's the right person, you don't even have to mess with doing what he said. <laughs> so true. And we, we got so it exactly true. backwards. So uh, I think part of what's wonderful about this is it's possible to say to people, uh, you may not be sure if there is a God or not. You may have big questions about the whole deity of Jesus or the resurrection. Uh, that's okay. You can just start with this. Say, I will follow this man. I will learn what he says, and I will do what he commands, and, and see where that leads you. And you can actually be a disciple right now if you got all kinds of questions. And that actually ends up being much more inclusive than, you know, the starting point is you have to force yourself by willpower to believe things that you find yourself not able to believe right now. So right. it's actually, it's both a much higher bar uh, because it's calling people to full discipleship of Jesus, but in a way that's much more accessible to people who doubt. It's like, that's okay. You can doubt. Uh, and if you have a better alternative, you got a better way to live, you got somebody else that's better to follow, go ahead and follow them. You know, do you believe it's better to follow yourself or mass culture or, you know, go ahead and do that. But uh, I, I think there's real good reasons to believe that there uh, has not yet appeared somebody who offers a way to live that is better than this man's. And so whatever your doubts and beliefs, you can start there. So really, discipleship is much more uh, available to people, including skeptical people, than we've often presented it. So I, I'll try when I'm uh, inviting people to respond to the call of salvation, to explain who Jesus is, what the kingdom is, but then to make the call uh, to become his disciple. And that includes, as it always did for Jesus— a sincere intent to obey what he actually said. And I do believe that's that's for many, many years what was missing in my own uh, preaching when I would call people to response. I would call them to receive forgiveness and make sure they were going to heaven, but it wasn't clear to me that Jesus always called people to trust him and to obey what he said. Mm. And so you've changed that. Over the last so I have years. changed that, and I always include, again, not in a legalistic way, not in a works righteous way, right. not in a here's what you got to do to earn your... It's like, this is salvation. Salvation is primarily living what Jesus taught. And mm -hmm. if I don't want that, I don't want to be saved. I, I may want right. pleasure, but that's different than wanting to be saved. So if you want salvation, it consists primarily in doing what Jesus said. Now, there is an external point to it. There will, you know, right now we live where the kingdom is available to us, but many kingdoms that are opposed to God's kingdom are also in power right now. And so we live with suffering and pain and conflict, and there will come a day when eschatology is fully realized and his kingdom is the only kingdom and everything is congruent with that. We don't live in that day yet. That day is coming. Um, but uh, it primarily involves the kingdom in my life and especially my will and my mind. And that's what salvation primarily is. And if I don't want that, then whatever it is that I want, it's not salvation. Well, and I think you're right. And I don't want people to, to miss what you said. I think the idea of follow me and try out some of the things I said, like come, yep. come hang out. That because for so many people, especially today with science being so prevalent on podcasting books, that kind of stuff, they're like, I just can't believe yeah. in the supernatural. Yep. I, I just have a hard time believing this guy actually defied the laws of physics, was resurrected. Is he really the son of God? Which I hear a lot with skeptical people. I totally it's agree. Like, 
and and belonging happens before belief, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're doing it and you're like, you know what? And and that was the disciples' journey. In my personal Bible reading this morning, I was in the book of Acts and you know, you meet a totally different Peter after the day of Pentecost. Somebody who's not like, you know, denying Jesus, but somebody who just stands up, preaches this incredible sermon, thousands are baptized, you know, that day. Yep. And it's like, what happened to this guy? Well, he just followed long enough that eventually, you know, when the Holy Spirit came on him, he received grace. He burned a lot of grace that day. Yep. Right. And yeah. and and that's powerful. So, um, John, you've written so much way beyond this book and, and just, I mean, you're sitting in your um, office right now, which like Mark Batterson's is just filled with books, which I think is a, a sign of wisdom. But um, there's some people listening here including clergy, but way outside of clergy who are like, you know what? I believe, but my life looks nothing like Jesus. It looks nothing like the kingdom of heaven. And I just feel convicted. I feel condemned. I've been down the aisle 300 times. I've, you know, confessed until there's nothing left to confess. I don't even know what to do. I'm a mess. Where do they start? Give them some hope. Yep. Um, uh, this will sound embarrassingly simple. Do the next right thing you know to do. Mm, that's Just good. Just do the next right thing you know to do. And don't try to boil the ocean. Uh, it, it's a very interesting thing. You know, we talk about kingdoms and the kingdom is primarily the will. That's that's yeah. And that's what is at the heart of you. And and there's a guy named Ray Baumeister. He's a social psychologist uh, who's kind of the, uh, number one guru of social psych these days, and he's done a ton of research on the will and willpower. And it turns out that the will is very easily depleted. So uh, you have to engage it to resist temptation or uh, to persist in something that's difficult or to do image management. That's why first dates and job interviews are so exhausting. Hmm. Um, there is one task that the will can do forever and never get tired, and that is surrender. Seriously. When you think about that, uh, you can run this experiment right now. Anybody to listen to it, just to, to pause and uh, put your palms up if you want to and say, your will be done. Your will be done. And you can do that all day long. And it's remarkably energizing. And, and I will find uh, that, that phrase, that thought, and that sincere intent. There's almost no situation... Uh, that I'm in, having a conversation with somebody, golfing and playing really badly uh, while I'm preaching, in any situation, simply to pause and say, your will be done, uh, has remarkable power to it. And so for anybody who's listening right now, if they're looking for a place to start, I wouldn't start with studying or reading something that might be a helpful or good thing to do. I wouldn't start with a conversation with another person that might be good. I'd start with just do the next right thing you know to do. That's that's where Jesus is. That's where the kingdom is. The kingdom is uh, where I seek to align my life with the will of God. Just do the next right thing you know to do. And then as you do that, just God, your will be done. Your will be done. Run that experiment and see what happens. You know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's so practical I'm familiar with those studies. And I mean, that's why you eat a much healthier breakfast than you do uh, dinner. Mm -hmm. And after dinner, why you might binge right before bed, right? And willpower does diminish with time. Yep. And, uh, oh, that's so good. John, um, people are going to want to learn more. Where can they find you online? 
What are you active on? Are you active? You're active on Twitter. I tweet, although I'm terrible at it. Uh, I'll uh, I'll generally throw a quote out once a week or so, but I don't I don't even know how to engage or like do Twitter conversations. I need a good Twitter tutor. And then there is a site called johnartberg.com and folks could go there. Uh, are I you think. are you on Instagram or not? I think I might be, but I couldn't tell you for sure. <laughs> I think I've looked you up there. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, is this really John or not yeah, John? I yeah. No, I I, I yeah. think there is something there, but it's probably been years since I grammed anything. Anyway, johnortberg.com. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, book is called Eternity is Now in Session. It is a great read, and I think we're all better when we do a deep dive like this. John, it won't be the last time if you're willing. Thank you so much. Always a joy, Carrie. Thank you. Well, that was a rich conversation, wasn't it? Hey, if you want transcripts or you want to see the show notes, head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 246. It is right there for you. If you can't find it, just search uh, leadlikeneverbefore.com and then type in John Ortberg in the search bar on my site and you'll find the show notes there. John's been on a few times. We've got all the links to previous episodes as well. Hey, remember, if you're looking for a virtual staff solution, belaysolutions.com forward slash carry is the place where I would start. In fact, it is the place where I do start when I need new team members. So make sure you check that out. Also, Love to have you at Rethink Leadership. Remember, the rates go up, so rethinkleadership.com. And thank you for our partners who make sure that the show comes to you free and continues to do so. So speaking of that, next week, a brand new episode. I've got a roundtable on church trends and many more things with Brad Lominick and Clay Scroggins. We are actually recording that almost in real time, so I haven't got a preview for you, but uh, we're going to have a lot of fun when we have that conversation in the room together in Atlanta. We bring that to you next week. And in the meantime, I am so grateful that you tuned in. I know how valuable your time is, uh, as eclectic as this is. I hope it's uh, been a good value for you. And if it has, could you leave us a rating and a review? Uh, We would love that on iTunes. And thanks for your comments, your emails, your constant encouragement. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.